This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. And on today's show, we've got a lot of uh, interesting Boeing FAA news, lots of stuff on the on the docket. First, we'll talk about this uh, U.S. indictment of six executives in the aerospace engineering industry about manipulating the labor market. So really interesting story about you know collusion, trying to keep employees kind of in one place and keep uh, competition and wages down. Talk about Qantas switching their domestic fleet from Airbus or to Airbus from Boeing. Talk about FAA pulling the license of a shop that repaired the 737 Max's sensors. Obviously, the trickle down effects of the crash is still being felt. We'll go back into the Mark Forkner uh, allegations or his indictment and some really new, uh, some interesting new developments there where the FAA is calling him a scapegoat to prosecutors in that case. And we'll also chat through some of the Boeing whistleblowers. And then in our EVTOL segment, uh, a new announcement from Bristow as they're partnering with Overair for their own butterfly EVTOL. And lastly, Eve, uh, Eve, which is Embraer's urban air mobility arm, they are planning to go public via SPAC, even though Embraer will remain 82% majority owner. So really interesting story there. Eve is sort of under the radar and doing really, really well uh, with provisional orders. So, Alan, let's start with this uh, Department of Justice release that they are indicting six executives on what seems like labor manipulation. So take us through this a little bit. You, we're both surprised by this, and you actually um, can see how this would be a, a major problem for engineers who are trying to you know, move up the ladder, increase their earnings, and just get their fair share in the market. Yeah, it, it at least early indications from what the DOJ has publicized, and we'll dig further into it as more information is released. But it seems like there's there were executives at a couple of the, what we call in aerospace, contract houses. So contractors work through uh, a company that does all the bookkeeping, social security payments, and all that monotonous stuff. Uh, and so the, a lot of engineers actually work through contract houses. So the engineers themselves are freelancers, be like a freelance reporter. And, and so you you hook up with the contract house. They find you jobs to perform at an aerospace company like Pratt & Whitney, in this case, it sounds like. And so you now have multiple contract houses competing to support a big aerospace provider. Well, w- the way that contract houses make money, at least the way I always assume that they do, is they're, they're, playing, they're paying the engineer a certain amount and they're getting a certain amount from uh, the aerospace company. So they're living in the margins between those two. If you can keep the employee costs down, the contract house makes more money. That's That would make logical sense, right? But all the employees of the contract house are, are free agents, just like a sports <laughs> baseball player. They're all kind of free agents. Uh, the the trick is, and what seems to be happening is, uh, the contract houses and executives at the contract houses, I'm sure this is done at the highest level, had some sort of agreement not to allow or not to hire these free agent engineers. 
So if a job was posted by a different uh, contract house and you're say, oh, man, that's, that's, I, I could get as an engineer, I could make some more money. Let me apply for that job to that contract house. The contract house wouldn't take you. And you wouldn't know it because I mean, you wouldn't know anything because it just wouldn't it'd say, well, you didn't fit the profile. We didn't. We found somebody else to do that job. Right. Uh, no. Okay, OK. So the engineers are probably completely oblivious to this thing until there must have been some engineer that did the math and realized. Uh, don't try to screw an engineer, by the way, because it'll always come back to you financially. Somebody's got a spreadsheet somewhere just keeping track of this stuff. So my guess is that the engineers started complaining like, huh. You know, I've never got a job from any of the other contract houses. That's weird. I can only work for this one contract house. Seems like there's collusion going on. And I guess the DOJ agreed. Yeah, definitely. This seems like it would be hard to unearth. And they say it's a long-running conspiracy. And we're not sure how, how long that was going on. But yeah, it seems like it would be difficult to figure that out. Like like you said, over time, it, you know, kind of, <laughs> we'll use a pop culture reference, but in the movie Zoolander, Derek was saying how like every place, you know, he's the world's most famous model, like oh, every place had hired him except for one. And you're like, well, wh- how would that be? Like, it's clearly I'm qual- it's clear that I'm qualified to, to work anywhere. Right. But this one place has never hired me. Or like you said, if you're clearly qualified to work on all these different projects, but then like this one stream of, of companies or this couple, this one group or a couple groups never hire you, that definitely starts to seem fishy. It does. It really does. I, and the aerospace companies themselves are super conscientious about it, right? They, they know that uh, any form of collusion, the engineers and the staff are just uh, be all, all over that. Uh, so you can kind of move around aerospace company, aerospace company, but through the contract houses, you always, my impression of the contract houses was whoever's on the street that they can put to work, that's a margin that they can make. And as many engineers they can put to work, it's a better situation because just multiply that margin. Profits are good, right? But not only were not they were not only doing that, they were also suppressing salaries. <laughs> and you can't do that in today's world. And which I wonder how broad this goes, how deep this goes. There are contract engineers at some of these big aerospace companies. There's thousands. Thousands and thousands and thousands of employees like that that are contract. Uh, so the money is not going to be trivial because if you're making 10% of a 100K engineer and you're doing that a thousand times, right? That's now you're talking about real money and you're doing it over a, a series of years. Hey, you're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars here that uh, the engineers were deprived of in terms of making a living. And I, you know, how, how do you, how do you, how do you even that out, right? How do, you, how do you claw that back? I, I, I don't know. It seems like it's inevitable. It's going to be, and Dan, maybe I can be wrong here, but it seems like there's going to be a class action lawsuit on behalf of all these contract engineers and employees looking to get this money back because it will be ten, tens of millions of dollars by it's done. Easy. Yeah, it'll be expensive. And so it says here on the uh, Department of Justice uh, release that it was an eight-year scheme. And the maximum penalty for conspiracy to restrain trade under the Sherman Antitrust Act is 10 years of imprisonment and a fine of a million dollars for individuals. But then there's some other provisions for that to increase uh, or, you know, it could be twice the loss suffered by victims of the crime. There are lots of different things. So, yeah, like you said, that could be very expensive. And as people 
realize that they are probably a part of this, like you said, there's probably going to be some big lawsuits. So this will be certainly an ongoing thing that's going to probably only sort of butterfly into the news. So we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. But yeah, really interesting, especially obviously you as a career lifer in this industry. Um, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. So let's move on to Qantas. Um, they're switching to Airbus, and this is a big blow to, to Boeing. Alan, obviously Boeing has had a lot of struggles. Um, of course, Airbus has had their struggles recently uh, with you know their, their paint issues, their lighting protection issues. Um, why do you think Qantas is switching to, uh, to Airbus? I, I, I mean, obviously price has something to do with it. And, uh, the impression about Boeing and safety is still hanging around. I haven't seen a lot of aerospace or airlines go into that. Hey, Boeing is unsafe bit, but it starts to feel like that after a while. I think Boeing has been really, really unwilling to lower prices. We've heard that a couple of times now that the uh, it, it seemed like a, an advantageous time for airlines to push Boeing to lower their prices because their view in the marketplace is not so good. So well, maybe we can get some more concessions out of Boeing and Boeing's not having any of that. <laughs> Just like, no, we still make a great product and go away. If you don't like it, go away. And that may have happened with Qantas, but I, I do think there's like two levels to this. Uh, you know, there's the Boeing Airbus thing and there are, very competitive in nature and i'm sure airbus put up a good price and boeing probably didn't back down because they knew Qantas was primarily a boeing user but australia has also been a little bit of an entanglement with france on the acquisition of three nuclear subs uh australia was going to buy diesel submarines from france and it was a big huge contract for france and then america stepped in and said hey we'll just basically give you three nuclear subs. How about that? And Australia said, sure, that sounds great. And then France got really upset. I think France actually pulled their ambassador out of Australia because of it. And that went really high up in the visibility scale quickly. Uh, and I kind of wonder if Qantas was encouraged by the Australian government to buy some Airbus airplanes to sort of calm the waters with France at the moment. Governments do that. It's not an airlines are a big purchase for a country. Forget about a company. It's a big purchase for a country. So th there may be some balancing the scales here, which does happen. Don't think it, it doesn't. It does. So let's continue with uh, with Boeing. So FAA, uh, this isn't directly related. I mean, this is indirectly related to Boeing, but the FAA has pulled a license of a shop in Florida, um, extra aerospace they were tasked with repairing the angle of attack sensors uh in the boeing 737 max which uh you know contributed to the lion air crash uh, in 2018 um alan obviously you talked a bunch about this how this was one of the the bigger reasons uh among all these different fingers being pointed at why this plane crashed and all the troubles behind the 737 max uh but what does this mean for a company like extra aerospace i mean are they done they're gone yeah. And this happened a couple of years ago. And I, 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 I wanted to talk about it today because there's so much going on with Boeing itself. But yet the components that failed, no one seems to be talking about them. And, and the companies that were repairing the angle of, of attack sensors quietly fade into the sunset. No one says boo about them. But the FAA was all over it. They went to go find out where these sensors were repaired at and started thumbing through um, these repair stations to see if they even had the authorization 
to repair them, and this company did not have authorization to repair uh, these sensors. So they were repairing them without having the proper authority to repair them. Not only that, it appears like they repaired them improperly, uh, <laughs> and, and it directly led to uh, the cause of an accident. Weirdly enough, you know, what the FAA did was just basically said, you're not going to exist anymore. You're not going to be a repair station. We're going to yank everything because you guys are out of control, which is unusual for the United States, I would think. But I would say that the FAA is pretty has pretty good oversight of companies that do repairs. Um, there's a decent level of checkup there, and you, you can't you can't get shady with the FAA on the repair side. I think that's crazy. I just huge downside risk. Not worth it. Really not worth it. Uh, in this particular case, it led to a crash. But Dan, don't you think that at, at some level that the, the executives at uh, this repair station are somewhat culpable? But you never uh, in that in those crashes, and there, I think there was two different repair stations. I think there's one overseas and this one in the United States. That aren't they somewhat culpable in this thing? Like they didn't have a license, they didn't have authorization to even repair them, and they were stamping them off as being repaired and being authorized FAA repairs repair, and then they weren't. Yeah, that seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's a little bit of liability that lies in there. And so far, I don't know if they've ever been held accountable for that nonsense. And um, I, I would say, having been in the aerospace community since birth, essentially, a lot has changed over time. And, and back in the 70s, this kind of stuff would happen more, I think, just because it just less paperwork, less oversight. Um, and they relied on people to be honest. In today's world, now there's a lot more oversight, there's a lot more paperwork, and they're going to go back and find out what happened. And you just can't, there's just no reason to even do it, really. There's no reason to do it. Yeah, and there's a lot of this stuff is still unfolding. So uh, in the Senate recently, a whistleblower report um, has come out, and uh, they've identified um, a former Boeing engineer, Martin Bickbowler, saying that, you know, Boeing is still unwilling to fully acknowledge the lapses in compliance um, with, you know, FAA stand, safety standards and how they've contributed to a lot of these continued problems. Um, Alan, what stuck out to you uh, with uh, Mr. Bick Bowler's uh, testimony to the Senate? Well, there was, there was a lot of different uh, FAA people. And then it, the, the article goes on to talk about uh, a specific GE engineer that had was concerned about the way the GE 9X engine was uh, tested and certified. Uh, there's, it, it, it's like, you know, it's, it, it's hard to describe uh, the level of friction that exists in a corporation that's building a, an FAA certified product. And the FAA is part of that mix. There will always be, on every program I've ever worked, there's always an engineer that disagrees on the way that things were done. And they may be 100% right, right? I, it's hard to tell from the outside. I, I don't have expertise in all aviation aspects, just my little lightning and hearth DER ticket. But most of the engineers at the table are pretty smart, and they've gotten there for a reason. And they've got their DER ticket because they're smart, and they're working at the FAA because they're very bright people, and they have these capabilities, and then they understand airplanes. So you get into this sort of management uh, management engineer clash that happens at the FAA and, and at the OEMs uh, all the time. 
so that I, I take this as part of the normal process that happens uh, that makes airplanes better. Unless you push management on safety, nothing's going to happen. Like if you call it out, like, okay, yes, we met the FAA regulations, but we sort of like uh, nickel and dime this thing. I mean, you held it up with toothpicks to get it there. Right? Just barely crossed the finish line. And that's where the safety issues really come from, is that uh, those things that just barely get through the certification hurdle, they meet the requirements, but they're not like there's little room for error. That's where we have issues. And Peter Lemmy, who I follow on Twitter, is was I guess was a, a Boeing engineer. If you ever if you if you're interested in aviation and, and interested in aviation safety, particularly on the Boeing side, he have a uh, he has one of the better understandings of how things work internally to Boeing and also how the airplanes work. So I, I follow him because it just he feeds my need for knowledge <laughs> about Boeing and how this all this stuff goes down. And he's been doing some really interesting tweets lately. In fact. This morning or yesterday, he had a, a tweet out that was talking about the culture in Boeing and how management needs to have more of a safety emphasis than just the engineers do. That there's a lot of good things that Boeing engineers could do, and probably Airbus engineers also. This, this, this is not a Boeing-specific thing, but that the engineers could make the airplane safer, but don't because management doesn't want to do it. Uh, and he, uh, Peter named a couple of different systems on the 737 in which that could be done, but hasn't been done. And his explanation is like, look, uh, we have ways of making the airplane safer over time. And from a system safety s standpoint, safer over time because of the pilots that are flying the airplanes. And uh, Peter does name that if you look at the number of accidents, uh, they're mostly focused on certain airlines, like a, like a few percentage of airlines are the vast majority of the issues. And in that are a few percentage of the pilots are the vast majority of the issues that we have to be able to design the airplanes for this, for the, you know, the vast community, but also of pilots, but also that sliver that may not be as capable as we would like them to be. And how do we do that? You know, how, do we assume that the, the co-pilot, like in the case of some of these crashes with the 737, the co-pilot basically flew it in the ground. Like, wh what is that all about? Is it pilot overload for inexperienced or less experienced pilots? Th those pieces tie into what this article is talking about with the FAA engineers and GE engineers uh, pushing back on the safety aspect. Uh, and I think the FAA has, has rightly pointed out lately that a lot of the DERs and a lot of the ODA um, unit members, the ex, quote unquote experts within the companies that are doing some of the certification work are new. It's just what happened over COVID. It's what just totally happened over COVID. A lot of older, more experienced people said, I'm going working out of home. I don't want to do this anymore. I got a golden parachute because times are bad. Companies want to get rid of me. I am out. But you've got this mass exodus of knowledge. And in the meantime, you're bringing in People that don't have as much experience. And I think that, that it's not so much less experience, but it's less ability to push back on management. A more senior person can tell you to a manager, that's bullcrap. We're not doing it that way. And management will listen, right? There's that little hierarchy thing that goes on between engineers and management. A lesser experienced engineer will can get manhandled in a sense by management. 
And that's a problem safety wise. And I think Peter's trying to highlight that. Hey, look, it's a give and take. Right. And we need to have these conflicts and we need to get them out in the open and we need to discuss them uh, because they need to get resolved. But don't think there's not a dynamic switch now because there will be with less experienced uh, certification engineers. It's going to be a problem. Yeah. And it's not just Boeing, by the way. It's happening at a lot of aircraft companies right now. So let's talk a little more about the Mark Forkner uh, indictment. Obviously, he is facing um, time in prison potentially for his role in the 737 MAX. And of course, he's the only person charged with a crime in that case. And a really interesting new development is that FAA officials have approached U.S. prosecutors basically saying he's being made a scapegoat and that the case's focus on him is, quote, incorrect and misguided. This seems really strange that the FAA is now jumping in to this person's aid. Uh, Alan, what strikes you about this case? I mean, this seems just really, this is an interesting twist for sure. I think, and I said it a couple of times now, that the flight test pilot doesn't design the system. And he doesn't really sign off on the system from a system safety standpoint. That's done elsewhere. And there's there are plenty of other engineers, management people that were directly involved in the certification approval, testing of that system. Forget about the flight test part of it for a minute. There's all kinds of other tests that happen before they get the flight test that say, this is how we're going to use a system. So there are many eyeballs laid on the system. And to assume that the flight test pilot had anything to do with the system design at a sort of a discrete level is doesn't tend to happen. Flight test engineers, flight test pilots fly the airplane and say it handles within parameters. It meets the FAA requirements for handling performance, uh, cockpit layout, all those different variables. That's what flight test pilots are. The flight test pilot here probably didn't know about some of the things that were designed into the system. Uh, and and what effect they would have because the, the flight test people don't tend to get deep into those into those discussions. That's what the system safety engineers are for, and the, and the electrical engineers that are designing, and the mechanical engineers that are designing that system and how it works, and the aero engineers designing how that system works and what the responses should be and what the outcomes would be and why it's met FAA requirements. You're like picking one person that wrote some. I'll say inappropriate tweets, dumb tweets even, <laughs> and using them, they're using them as, uh, as someone they can cudgel as an example. And I'm not sure that makes sense, right? Because uh, I think what the defense is going to say is like, he didn't design the system. You don't even see his name on any sign off any of the, the system stuff. How are you going to hold this flight test pilot wholly responsible? You let Boeing pay a fine. You're going to put him in jail. Like there's uh, what there seems to be a disparity on what's going on here. And, and I don't understand the purpose because if the purpose is to make 737 and all aircraft safer and go through a process of, of uh, re-envisioning how safety is done. Great. All for it. But if we end up, which I think we're headed down, Dan is, you know, we take this one engineer and we, bludgeoning him, maybe putting him in jail. Let's just say he goes to jail for five years, right? And then we don't do anything on the safety side or don't relook at what caused that. Probably some part of that was management. Then I'm. Then what's, how does that help? So there's, and I think that's what the FAA is saying. It's like that flight test pilot 
wasn't the linchpin to all of this. And doing this doesn't help the regulatory system at all. I think that's a very good take on it. It won't. It won't. It'll make people like me much more um, by the book, right? And I'm not sure you want to design airplanes by the book. That'll be a problem. All right, moving on to our EVTOL segment, let's talk about Bristow. So obviously, uh, they are pairing up with Overair, and they've got a new EVTOL design called the Butterfly. And they also, if you go to Overair's website, overair.com, you'll see that they sort of have, you know, this sleek white veneer. They show, uh, you know, like a vertiport and a couple of their aircraft at it. They show an, an app uh, kind of with, you know, like it says $20.89, you know, butterfly pick up ETA 15 minutes, just like it's an, an Uber or a Lyft, um, which is obviously, you know, the vision of some of these companies for the future. Um, still just to see that, like you could just hop on a plane like that is crazy. Um, but Alan, why do you think uh, Bristow and Over are entering this market? They say a Houston-based uh, transportation group has pre-ordered between 20 and 50 of their butterflies, which will be a five-passenger, 100-mile range uh, aircraft that they hope to be certified in 2025. You know, just another hat in the ring, but what do you see that's that's different with them? Uh, not too much in terms of the, the timeline. I think that's going to be the most important piece here is meeting a timeline and getting in service. As there's a huge rush to be the first EV2L in service that has some Uberist tendencies or technology with it. If you watched Archer, Archer had their first, I wouldn't call it a flight, hover. Okay, They had their first hover this week. Everybody's racing to be done by like 2023. And 2025 will turn into 2026 pretty quickly. You could have the world's greatest airplane, but if it's two years late, it doesn't matter because the market marketplace will all be overcome by Joby, Archer, uh, William, which is still in, in Volocopter. It's going to be really hard to overtake them. And I, I wonder if they're going to have issues uh, even in Brer. Uh, it's going to be really aggressive. Uh, so if you're behind those, will you be able to find investors in your really cool airplane design? I don't think so. I think that that time to get investors on board was about a year ago, which was a bad time to have to go do that. But if you didn't have anything flying a year ago, you're going to have a hard time getting a lot of investment, which is going to get you to the finish line. So cool technology. I think that concepts are really cool. The aircraft's really cool. It's a question of timing and money, really. Yeah, that's that's valid. Because like you said there are a, the, the leaders do have aircraft and they're starting to test them now. And that's a significant head start on a lot of these other ones. Yeah, so you're right. Speaking of uh, Embraer, so their EVTOL arm, EVE Urban Air Mobility, they're going to become the latest to go public uh, with a with a SPAC. So they've agreed to combine with Xanet Acquisition Corp. That's the shell company that they will combine with. And they've been talking, I guess, since the summer. Um, Alan, EVE is like, I, it does look, looks like they don't have a flying prototype as far as I can tell. Um, that might be wrong, but uh, they do have a lot of provisional orders. They've got a, a bunch more recently. Um, on Tuesday, they confirmed uh, 500 more EVE aircraft. Uh, so it looks like you know their four-passenger version is is very well respected. Obviously, because you know Embraer is the backer. So 
part of this deal to go public says that Embraer is going to maintain 82% majority stake, which I'm sure probably gives people a lot of confidence that the resources and money behind this are going to be there. Oh, sure. The It's not just about buying the aircraft. It's it's what do you do with it for the next 10 or 20 years that you may own it. And that's that's where a lot of decisions are made. It's not um, on the how cool the technology is or how inexpensive or expensive the aircraft is. It's what's the network behind it that's going to keep this aircraft going. And if I want to sell it as any resale value, when you're selling a, a reselling a Boeing aircraft, you know there's value there, right? Because Boeing's always there and you can get parts for your aircraft and you know that there's a network of people that are flying the same aircraft. So there's a lot of spare, there's a lot of spare parts. There's a lot of knowledge on the mechanic side. When you have a small aircraft company just starting, that's a big problem. Even for companies like Joby, I think that's a big problem that the perception is that uh, I don't want to own one of these airplanes. And, and Joby is basically saying to everybody, by the way, that you, you're not going to be able to buy them as a private pilot, that we're going to, Joby's going to own them all. Embraer is a different story, though. Embraer, you would feel comfortable about buying the aircraft because, you know, they have the resources to support it. The technical publications will come out. They got a service department. You can buy parts from them. Uh, and it's a worldwide name, so you feel pretty comfortable. And they have built astoundingly uh, high-quality products. That <laughs> So they're a real airplane company, right? They're a real aerospace company. They've done really amazing things in that space. And so it just lends credence and raises the value in my opinion, is the value of the aircraft. It's not just what the aircraft is worth in terms of its parts, assembled parts. It's that value plus the Embraer name on top of it that you're getting and all the, the backing by them. So that makes a lot of sense, Dan. I think that Embraer is uniquely positioned because what are the other sort of heritage aircraft companies that are building an EVTOL right now? Yeah, none. Airbus maybe, yeah. And of course, uh, Falco, SkyWest, and Republic, which is an American Airlines affiliate, they're already customers. They own you know E-175s and E-190s. So yeah, it's just like if you owned a MacBook and an iPhone when the iPad rolled out, you're like, yeah, I trust that Apple is going to make a pretty cool tablet. Like, let's put me down for one, right? So it sounds like, obviously, like you said, high quality aircraft they already own, they're already comfortable with, they know the company. Um, that seems like a no-brainer that they would pick pick Eve to do that for them in the future. So absolutely, like it makes a lot of sense. And like you said, Eve has been—I guess they've been in the news cycle a good amount, but not getting quite as much press and acclaim as you know, like the Joby and Archers and uh, some of the others. But they're continuing to, to motor along and and sell um, or at least create provisional orders. So it's going to be a lot of potential cash there should they get to get it to market. Which seems like again they have the resources and talent to do yeah and they have a built-in marketplace in brazil i think makes a lot of sense that's true which we which we've touched on a little bit that hopping from rooftop to rooftop and and small city to small city in latin america um, or south america makes a lot of sense potentially yeah it does it does more than say los angeles <laughs> all right well that's going to do it for this week's episode of the struck aerospace engineering podcast thanks so much for listening we re really appreciate you being a listener for this great uh, 2021 uh, podcast season, obviously closing in on 100 episodes, which will probably eclipse in early 2022. But we want to, again, take the time to thank you for being a listener, for sharing the show, uh, for leaving reviews, and to continue leaving comments and thoughtful questions on YouTube. So 
we will see you here uh, next week in 2022. Looking forward to another great year with you. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.